Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, February 13th, 2022. Right. Right, the day before Valentine's Day. The day before is, Valentine's Day. Which is sort of our Super Bowl, don't you think? Oh! <laughs> no? Really? Right. You have no comeback to that. No, right? I have no comeback to that. Good. Yeah, I've been working on that one for a while, huh? It just came to me. Really? Yeah. Um, uh, right. So we're, you know, getting ready for the Super Bowl. Yeah. Right? I mean, look, uh, I could pick the winner, but it's not going to mean anything by this time, time it comes out. I'll, I'll say it. I'll go on record. The Rams should win. But uh, okay. I told you, it's uh, the, the theory is that the Rams will come up with a lead at halftime and the Bengals will either come back or they won't. That's the way the game is likely to go. <laughs> right. Yes, we know that Pepper is rooting for the Rams. So that uh, that should be enough to put them over the top. Right. Like people in L.A. pay attention to the Rams, which is Ooh. they don't. Ooh. But it's interesting that it's a home game for them. Yeah. It's a home game. And they're the visiting team, by the way, because uh, they have a system where the NFC or the AFC alternate. So even though it's in their stadium. Uh, by dint of earlier scheduling, it's they're the visiting team. That's well, a meaningless fact. It sounds mm-hmm. very complicated. It is way it is. above my yeah. NFL pay grade. Yeah. So, yeah. So we we've been watching our share of the Olympics, uh, right? And we'll we'll get back to the Olympics at the end of the podcast. Yeah, I mean it's a good Olympics for us because it's not too interruptive. No, it's a, you can watch it while you're doing something else. While you're doing five other things. As a matter of fact, really. you're, be- you're better off that way. Honestly. Yes. Uh, Although I have to say the exception to that was snowboard cross. Yeah, I, mixed, I got, mixed snowboard cross. Which is, you know, everyone's interested in mixed snowboard cross. I mean, you know, we ought to explain why I don't it even is. know why I was turning it on. But I got, don't know why they created it. We got they, drawn it, in. It's, it's one of these nonsense events. They said, we built the course, so we can't just have one race. So they, they have a men's, they have a women's, and they do tag teams or something. And but this they is had like, a human interest story. It was interesting. I got drawn because, in. Because it was the two... Eldest competitors, exactly. I think, in the games total. For, well, for the U.S. for sure. I don't know for, about total. Perhaps for the universe. I don't know. Um, the uh, the guy was Nick Baumgartner. Yeah, 40. 40 years old. Forty years old. Yeah. You know. And Lindsay you might as well put Tom Brady in there. Uh, no, he's older. And Lindsay Jacobellis is thirty six, but and she's already won a gold. Yes, she yes. won a gold. Yeah. She so she's like the oldest ago. person to ever win a gold. Right. Yeah, her story Whatever. was uh, 15, 20 years ago, when she first got to the Olympics, she screwed up. She would have had a gold. She was the best in the world. And yeah. she just screwed up. She she thought she had already won or something. It's a, it's a long story. But um, she somehow hadn't won a gold, even though she's been the top of her sport for a long time. And snowboard, you know, it's, it's racing on a snowboard, basically, over hills and valleys. You know, it's, it's as simple as it could possibly be. It's Nothing like a, we could possibly understand. No, no, no. We could understand it. That's what's great about it. It's a non-tech sport. So it's like... Oh, that's true. Out, there's you, a winner. Yeah. No, but there's a hill and there's a hill and there's a snowboard. That's all yeah. it is. And, uh, but they're not going 80 miles an hour and it's not groomed and it's not... Uh, it's not a lot equipment. of judging on style. No, it's just like you, you could do this with your neighbor if you had something like a course in your but backyard. But what drew us in... Yeah. Partly. What, what drew us it, At the beginning of this yeah. uh, broadcast, they showed uh, oh, yeah. the, the, a the clip guy. of the guy. Baumgartner yeah. in tears yeah, right. because he did not meddle yeah. in his own in uh, event. specialty. He had, well, it's the same thing, but basically in, in the men's race, he didn't do well. And it turns out he's 40, he, but he's been in a number of Olympics and he never has won a medal. And he, he was... 
in tears saying this was, you know, it might be my last shot and this is unbelievable. I wonder what it's all been for, et cetera, et cetera. What a yeah. huge disappointment. And they said, well, actually, he has another chance. It's in this event because you get to have a partner and he's chosen as his partner, Lindsay Ch- uh, Chacabellos, who's really good. And together, they might be the team that wins. Who knows? He might might get a medal. And uh, he's saying to himself, really? Really? And it went through various heats, and they kept placing well enough so they got to the final four. And he only had to come in third to get a medal. And there they were in the final four, and the way it goes is that the men go first, and whatever leads are created in the men's race is carried over to the women's race, and they have a staggered start. And he actually managed to win the the men's race, but just a little bit. Right. You, everybody in the room kept saying, don't worry, he just has to not fall down. Right. He just has to right? stay in the race because yeah. she's good. She's good. <laughs> She'll beat the other girls. And that's what happened. Yeah. No, uh, no, that's not what happened. It is he what came happened. in first in his heat. He did, but then... In, but, 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 in his final. But the more, but and he, no one expected him to do that. I understand. He was amazing. But, my, but what did happen was... He she, rose to the occasion. But she also won. She came through. She came through too. Yeah, yeah. So it was just uh, Very it was a fabulous yeah. story, it human was, interest wise right. and visually, and uh, we, we enjoyed we that. We could relate because they're almost there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, curling uh, well, remains well, inscrutable I will, to the non curling. I have a great story about curling, I'll tell you at the end. But okay. uh, it is, I'll go with it's inscrutable. And but uh, as opposed to this, which by the way draws you in, uh, you know, I was going to say curling doesn't draw you in, but it kind of does. It kind of does, but it, 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 it's, it's, it's like you're watching bowling or but something you, like no, that. No, but I you mean, watch it's, it. It's it's hard to parse out what exactly is going no, oh, on. Oh yeah, no, you can't really and, parse uh, it. You know, you keep trying to watch. It's, it's like watching a darts tournament in someone's basement or something like that. It's it's uh, weird. It's um, and the cast of characters is so varied. Yeah, it, it's hard to fathom. Yeah. Uh, All right. So anyway. All right. So there's an article here in in the journal called The Country Where Betting on Sports is Patriotic, which is Norway. And there's been a lot of talk about betting on sports lately. Uh, I don't know what you call these people, scolds. Uh, You know, obviously, the United States has done a complete 180 on sports betting, including the major leagues and football and so on. You mean because it used to be illegal? It used to be illegal and it was the most horrific thing one could possibly contemplate. And now it's been embraced by all the major sports. So it's saying that's cool. And every other advertisement during these sports events is about betting, which is incredible because it was taboo just, I don't know, six months ago, a few years ago. Gambling is generally taboo. Not anymore. Except a, except that uh, when the government decides they want to get their piece of the pie, well, they can they legalize well, it. Well, that's what they did. Okay, so maybe that was the reason that it became legalized, because the government saw but, a tax opportunity. But it is sad when people have problems. Well, and, so yeah. then, then you read about it, and they say, well, oh my God, it's the scourge of the nation, and all these people have problems. Well, I don't know. I don't want to get into the numbers, but it is a very small minority of people who really have serious problems. But they do. The people who have serious problems do have serious problems. But it's, it's quite clear that that concern is not near enough in, in terms of weight to upend the notion of having widespread gambling. I mean, All right. So anyway, what, what were you going to tell us about? Well, Norway does it differently. And they, they start the article by saying Norway does a lot of things differently. And one thing is that Norway... Uh, maybe this is an analogy one might draw or, or a metaphor. Uh, they, they have a different approach to youth sports. 
than the U.S., according to the journal. They have an emphasis on having fun above all else. And and strangely, it pays off because Norway uh, wins more than anybody else in the Winter Olympics, which no one can figure out because it is a very small country. It's a population smaller than Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And it's it's topping the the medal list for the Winter Olympics, which is kind of hard to fathom. But we can't really break that down. But here's here's something else that's odd about Norway. Um, they finance their uh, sports um, training and the like uh, for these Olympic athletes uh, with gambling. Uh, that's clearly that's their their sole the main uh, support comes from gambling. And here's the way they do sports gambling. In Norway, there is a company uh, called uh, uh, Norsk Tipping, and uh, it's a uh, government monopoly, and they handle sports gambling in the country. So it's government operated. It's it's like the postal service, only more so. All right. (laughs) All right. And uh, but apparently it works and it is tightly regulated, but in an interesting way, Uh, when you make a bet you know that you're likely to lose because that's the way bets are. But you designate a portion of the of the proceeds of your bet to a sports organization that you are familiar with. So you're you're betting, but you're also funding yeah. the local soccer club, the local mm. whatever. So that's cool, I guess. Um, and uh, beyond that, they very much um, monitor the individual uh, the betting by individuals. So there's a mandatory loss limit of $2,000 per month and $500 for the whole suite of casino games. In other words, as they say here, you can still lose your house in Norway gambling, but it's going to take you a heck of a long time. Okay. All right. So it's, it's very, uh, you know, very tightly regulated and it supports their Olympic program, which is greatly successful. Now, what do they bet on in Norway, you're asking? Well, they don't bet on the Super Bowl. No surprise. What do they care about the Super Bowl? They bet on the Olympics. Mm-hmm. As much as anything, although the thing they really bet on is the Eurovision Song Contest, that <laughs> that attracts a lot of money. And here's the problem, or here's the funny issue about that. All right, the guy who runs the organization Norse Tipping said that when they do the Eurovision Song Contest, he roots against Norway because everyone in Norway. Bets on the country's entry in the song oh, contest. Okay. And if they were to win, they he'd win. have a huge payout. Yes. So he <laughs> is the only guy in the country who's rooting against Norway. And he says the same thing true in the Olympics. He says he's rooting against every Norwegian athlete because, you know, otherwise the organization is going to lose. He said, you know, if, it, if all the Norwegian athletes won, I'd lose my job. Uh, so that, that's the weird thing about it. Um, Somehow it works. So there you go. So it's awkward if he goes to like uh, what Olympic watch parties. Yeah, I, I assume right? he doesn't. I assume he doesn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they do it in good spirit, I guess. It's it's not kind of the rough thing that it is in the U.S. It's not. We don't. They don't pretend in Norway that you're going to make any money as a gambler. Quite the opposite. Okay. All right. Uh, so to talk about going to foreign countries to learn how to do things. I know that your your story here is about how one picks up the trash, right? Yeah. Well, trash is becoming, you know, a key story because yeah. we we got too much of it. Yeah. You know? um, and what's interesting about in Taiwan is you know, everybody has their own thing. We used to, and when I was growing up, uh, it was municipal 
and uh, guys came around, you know, from house to house, right. and uh, unloaded your your trash can. Yeah. And uh, well, they still do. And no, well, maybe I don't know. Um, I mean, they came into your yard. They just came in. You know, you didn't put them out on the street. Oh no. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, we never I, put we our never trash out on the street. Oh, no, we put it from out. yard to yard, really? and then we carry it out to the truck. Okay. okay. Oh, is that so? So you participated in it? No, 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 no. The the trash men the came trash men to did. your yard, okay. found your trash can, really emptied it. Where did you go? Had, in Kansas or something? No, Maryland. Okay, that makes no sense. But then, and then up in our area here, yeah. it's private. Yeah, you know, so we pay. Right, and they're competing companies. But you put your trash. I know on in the, some place in your, New York my, they have it's mafia controlled. No, no, please et don't make that accusation. My real point is this. Yeah, the big difference is you put your trash out. In, in you New put Jersey. your trash out, and we did that. In Long and Island. even now they have, and now they have very fancy carts that right. the right. trucks pick up on their own. There's right. no guy picking right. it up That's and great. dumping but it. But in, in Taiwan, in Taiwan, yeah. okay, um, the, Taiwan. Uh, apparently in Taipei, they were quite upset with uh, the the messy condition yeah. of their streets, right. and they said we we've got to improve this. It's you know it's trash everywhere, and. Um, they instituted a pay-as-you-throw system right. so that the um, people buy these blue trash bags. Mm-hmm. And then the way it gets picked up is it seems to be five days a week yeah. at a certain time of day, the yellow trash truck right. with a white little white recycling truck behind it come through, right. come down the streets, announcing themselves with um, classical music for Elise. Beethoven. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or um, Maiden's Prayer. Right. And uh, people stand, people line up on the street, you know, with their bags. Yeah. And it's a social experience. Right. So they're, you're, they're bringing their trash to it. I mean, no one's right. going in. And they line up, up to the throw it into the truck. And right. And everyone knows it's like the good humor man's coming. People, you yeah. know... Um, Make friends there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, People yeah. see friends. Yeah. They chit chat and so on. Now it's apparent, theoretically or allegedly, it has greatly improved the um, quality of the everyone's into it. Trash there, right? You know, it's much cleaner city. They are um, something yeah. about uh, second only to Germany. A household recycling rate of over 50%. Right. Okay, so they're doing great. Well, they have a motto. The trash never hits the ground in Taiwan. Yeah. But, uh, you know, some people don't think it's a fabulous thing because, uh, you know, if you... Um, well, you got to make their schedule. you got to make their schedule. So right. what are you going to do? Uh, leave work yeah. early so well, you that can go throw little, out the a trash? Little, little and one disgruntled... Uh, Man, Charles Sue says, well, you know, it's not like uh, the, you know, we are all grandmas and grandpas who sit at home all day and have nothing to well, do. Well, there is a very uh, large elderly population there, I think. But it's funny, that last bit at the end. There was, they say a, a, a quote from uh, 
waste expert Mr. Maynard, who happened to be in Rome and was walking through a park and heard uh, strains of uh, Maiden's Prayer playing on a merry-go-round or something, had a Pavlovian response. He said, I felt my blood rush. I wanted to go grab my garbage bag. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think that's very... Clever if it works, uh, it would be a big change here. I don't know if it works. No, no, here no. I don't think, I don't, you can't do it out in the country. Yeah, well, you know. but, but it is we, kind we of funny. You can't be standing out on the street all it, afternoon. It is a real change, though. It is a yeah. real change. But I think it, it as an urban thing, yeah. it, uh, it might really work in some places. Yeah, it might. Uh, and now that more and more people are working from home, yeah. then it makes it. it easier to yeah, right. run out and do that. Yeah, right. Um, and, the, you know, there are wealthy people who pay you, you know they have a service to yeah, go sure, stand sure, out sure. Well, that's what you street do. for them but yeah um, i thought that was really clever um all right well so, you know us we love the garbage we love the sewage <laughs> <laughs> we are bottom feeders yeah um so here's something that we talked about uh before and i thought it had been put to bed uh but it had it there was a controversy involving the kill a mockingbird when very big production on broadway of course very huge success produced by scott rudin uh, but before it really uh, had its first performance, there was a legal dispute uh, about the fact that the book had previously been licensed for the purpose of being turned into a play. And uh, the question is, how did that uh, production stand uh, as opposed to the one that was going to be on Broadway? It was written uh, by someone named uh, Sir Gell, Christopher Sir Gell, as opposed to the Aaron Sorkin version, which, of course, would be much grander and, and mounted for New York City. Um, and uh, the Reuton production initially, uh, their reaction was to shut down the Sergil productions. And I should explain what that means. Sergil's uh, play was being performed, you know, licensed and intermittently, but regularly um, in community theaters schools, and the like. And it's been the version that's been around for years. It was published in 1970. So there was a play called To Kill a Mockingbird that was out there, but not in any big theaters. Um, And when uh, Rudin's group got the rights from Harper Lee, who was still alive when this happened, uh, with the cooperation uh, of of Lee and ultimately her estate, uh, they went to shut down the Sergio production. And they said, no, 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 no. You guys had very limited rights. Those rights are extinguished once there's a first-class New York production. And they actually succeeded in shutting a lot of them down. And they came in with, I hate to use the phrase, big-time lawyers. And they kind of intimidated them. And they shut down some productions. I remember talking about it. had been rehearsed. They were ready to go on. And they just shut them down. Right. It seemed like a very mean-spirited. It was. uh, Right. Which is what some people say about Scott We talk about supporting the arts. Right. And it's not like uh, I doubt any of those productions were raking in the bucks. No, I'm sure they weren't. No one was getting rich off of uh, this version. Well, apparently, I never saw this, but the Rudin's folks kind of relented in some occasions. I didn't read too much about it. But the legal dispute went on because the people of Sergio's estate ended up suing suing Lee's estate, which was associated with Rudin, saying, no, no, we're entitled to continue to put in our production. The uh, original contract, the licensing contract, was one that allowed us to put on these productions uh, at community theaters and at schools and the like in smaller cities. It just said that we can't do a first-class production in New York City. Uh, and uh, fine, we're still not doing that. And there, there's nothing that requires us to shut down just because there was an Aaron Sorkin version in New York City. That's what got litigated 
uh, by an arbitrator. And there are even the article I'm reading now uh, gives, uh, you know, uh, different, different, both sides give different versions of the facts. I, I don't have the contract in front of me. But uh, ultimately, um, and recently, the arbitrator decided that the Sergio group was right that there was no reason to shut down their production. They should have been allowed to continue and awarded damages. And here's the funniest thing about it. The, uh, the damages are $185,000 plus legal fees of $2.5 million. And so that must warm the cockles of your <laughs> retired well, lawyer heart. It, the reason is because these productions at the community theaters like don't make much money. So when you went to go to prove damages with yeah. respect to uh, how much money you were going to make by putting it on, you know, at Bucks County Community College or whatever, well, you were, you're going to make $190. What, what, I don't know what you were going to make. Maybe you were going to lose money. And when they came time to prove the damages, it probably came clear that they weren't going to make a ton of money, and that was that. But, the, you know, there is a requirement to pay legal fees, apparently, in accordance with the arbitration clause, which, again, I didn't look at, but I don't know that that's much disputed. And, you know, as you say, as it should be, the lawyers get paid quite a bit. And uh, that's where the money changes hands. So um, I thought that was interesting. The um, It's under well, appeal. Of course you did. It's under appeal. And I know you find this interesting. What? So Well, I have an art story yeah. about outsider artist Henry Darger. Yeah. And uh, and it's a legal story. All actually. stories are ultimately right. legal stories. So he's an interesting guy. Yeah. I uh, first saw his work at... Um, the uh, what's it called the museum uh, American Museum for folk, folk art yeah and uh, he did he did bizarre um, pictures of uh, he, he wrote uh, actually he wrote a story um, a fifteen thousand page graphic novel okay yeah. and uh, and then uh, and this one was the story of the Vivian girls in what is known as the realms of the unreal of the Glandeco Angelian war storm caused by the child slave rebellion mm-hmm. all right and then there was another book that was 10,000 pages long and there were journals and he was a guy who um had you know had a really tough life his mother died when he was very young his father was sick he ends up in an orphanage mm-hmm. uh due to his bad behavior uh, in the orphanage, he ends up in an as- asylum for the feeble-minded, mm-hmm. which he uh, tries to escape. Uh, once he gets brought back, he finally does uh, escape at age 17 to Chicago and then gets a job as a custodian for a um, Catholic hospital, and he works there the rest of his life. And he has this um, apartment uh, where he's doing all this work. He, you know, he used found objects. He did collage. Um, and the, the pictures are fascinating. And it's this epic story of this battle about uh, children, you know, being attacked by, you know, various forces. Right. And this seems to echo, you know, his experience, you know, in his life. They are strange pictures. Um, all the little girls' pictures are either um, have no genitalia or have penises. Yeah, right. So that's off-putting. Yes. But it, just visually, <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm attracted to weird stuff like that. Generally, I have very um, 
you know, what would you call it? Uh, run-of-the-mill taste, okay? Um, but it, visually fascinating stuff. I mean, I was drawn to it the first time I saw it. Um, but anyway, so the thing is, he um, lives his whole life. He's He has some friends. He, um, he allegedly, you know, wanted to adopt a child and things like that. And he had a tough life. Um, he eventually, at the end of his life, he is moved into a nursing home or something and dies there. Actually, it's the same facility that his father died in mm -hmm. uh, many years before. When he moves out, um, the the story is he tells his landlords um, they can take over. Right. You know what's in his apartment. They'd never even been in. Right. You know, and it's not till he dies that they um, realize what's there. And his landlords uh, were um, a photographer, Nathan Lerner, and his uh, pianist wife, Kyoko Lerner. And uh, they, you know, have enough savvy to understand this is remarkable stuff mm -hmm. and they are the ones who save all this work and you know sell it get it into museums uh, etc and so forth so this is what's going to appeal to you you know nobody um, there was no uh, suddenly we have found out who Henry Darger's descendants are mm -hmm. Okay, with the help of um, a kind of a famous uh, photography collector, Ron Slattery. Um, and um, so now the descendants uh, are, what do you call it, um, suing for the rights of the copyright. Well, they want, they want the money. They, they, they want say the it's money. theirs. It should have okay. gone to them because they're the closest right. relatives. Sure. And, you know, and, you know, the... Um, the landlords having it, there were precedents for that. Yeah. But uh, recently, I mean, Slattery, Slattery seems very concerned about um, the, uh, l you know, the legal, um, I guess, rights of the descendants. Right. He feels strongly that artists' estates should be handled by their legal descendants. Mm -hmm. um, that's the right thing to do. And he came across an article um in the Northwestern Journal of Technology and Intellectual Property that was actually about Henry Darger's estate and, uh, and said uh, that um, the learners, the landlord's title to the copyrights is contestable. So it's one thing, I guess there's a difference between um, being able to sell the art yeah. or having sold the art and being in control of the copyrights I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, we'd have to take a look at it. But the fact of the matter is, uh, whether you think it's right or not, I think the uh, descendants are going to have a pretty strong claim. I mean, it's kind of hard to disregard their interests. Yeah. Yeah. So they're even coming, though Even you, though it feels like they had nothing to do with These are all people who never met them. Right. right? Never met okay. them. They didn't lift right. a finger for them, and uh, there they are. Although they do say for them, it's all about family. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's all about family. It's all and, about sharing uh, the money okay. as a family. And this um, this uh, one uh, guy, Michael Bonesteel, who worked on, who was an editor of a book about Henry Darger, says, um, I always thought that, uh, you know, the landlord's ownership could easily be challenged, but it rubs me the wrong way when descendants two or three generations down the line decide to cash in. It's just greedy and distasteful. Yeah, well, right. that might be fair. 
That might be fair. Anyway, but the but law doesn't it is, it is very interesting work. And uh, Well, I told you that. Thank saw, goodness yeah. that, again, all that stuff didn't go in the trash. Yeah. Um, I told you that I saw an article, this interview with uh, David Byrne of the Talking Heads in the Broadway show, the Utopia show, that uh, they asked him his favorite artist because he apparently draws. Uh, and he said, it's this guy, Henry Darger. Yeah. And uh, I'm going, who's Henry Darger? Yeah. And, uh, you know, an outside, or what's, what's the phrase? It's not outside artists. Outsider artists. Oh, that's what yeah. it's called? Outsider artists. Uh, which was weird. And he said, because here's a guy who's not doing it for the money. He's not doing it for any conventional reason. He just has to express himself. Right. Uh, so there you go. Uh, yeah, very weird. Uh, yeah, that's the most interesting thing, not the legal stuff. But I know you love the legal stuff, so <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, Thank you, dear. Yeah. So uh, there's a book about... Index, uh, yes, it's called Index, A History of the Index, a bookish adventure from the medieval manuscripts to the digital age uh, by a fellow named Dennis Duncan. Now, this might seem an odd thing to attract our attention. Uh, both the Journal and the Times had an article about this this week, so uh, maybe there's something to this. And the journal article begins with a story about uh, Bill Buckley, William Buckley, having published a memoir in 1966 about his attempt to run for mayor of New York. Um, he, uh, he had sort of a frenemy relationship with Norman Mailer. And he delivered, uh, handed a, ver- you know, a copy of the book to Norman Mailer. Uh, and uh, in the back of the book, uh, index, in the index in the back of the book, next to Mailer's name, in the version that he gave Norman Mailer, uh, next to Mailer's name, the index said in red ink, hi. And the reason it did that, because Buckley assumed that the first thing that Mailer would do when he got the book was just look, up, go, his look up his name, which is exactly what he did, and see what, what, what kind of reference to the word right. of him. And apparently people, this is a thing, this is what people do. Uh, and there's mischief involved. In the index, and it has been used, according to Duncan, in a way to settle scores. People will write these indexes, will write sometimes scandalous things about people in the index, like, you know, his egregious dullness would be one of the listed things, he, 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 you know, that you'll see in an index. People play games with the index. Uh, so that's just sort of a funny story. But um, he does take the history of the index, which, he, which by the way, he views as uh, important because it's... It, to him, it is it is sort of the precursor of the digital age. Uh, the index organizes our lives today is to quote, the morass of the digital world is indexed and served to us by search engines. What, what, what is an index? An index is just, a, what do you mean, what is an index? What is it? What, what, what is that question? It's the mean? list of things in the back of the book? Yeah. Yeah, that sure. organizes our lives. Yes, let me, let me, let me. Uh, I think this guy is getting a little overexcited. Well, he might be overexcited, but, but. Well, look, he goes into great detail. Here's the, he says it wasn't the kind of thing that was able to be developed at the beginning for a couple of reasons. First of all, before you had the index, you had to develop alphabetical order, which was a headache. That didn't exist, you know, uh, in medieval times. And then another thing that didn't exist when things were first published is numbering of pages. So you had to get past the alphabetical order. You had to get past the numbering of pages. Then you had the idea about, you know, people just using the index. Well, because you didn't have pages. Yeah, right. Exactly right. right. Uh, to uh, Then the cleverness that people started expressing in the 16th and 17th century, playing games in the index. Uh, but he makes the point 
that what makes an index useful is that its sequence is not aligned with the structure of the work it refers to. It splits the content and the form. And that's what causes so much hand-wringing, that there are people apparently who take a book and just go to the index and look at what they're interested in and don't get any context. They just they zero in on this and this and this and this. They don't get well, much of the Well, lots of times when form. you're doing research, that's what you do, right? I understand. You just look up your guy. But he sees, or... that's his analogy between that okay. and what he calls the age of search, in which people are getting facts and getting information with no context at all, getting one-liners, but not seeing how things fit together in the form of a really serious substantive work. So he sees mischief in the index in that way. In any yeah, event... It sounds more like cheating than mischief. Okay, right? cheating. I'll go with cheating. Mischief? Mischief. But, uh, it, you know, look, it's, it's a kind of a silly esoteric So what's subject. the book again? It's called Index, A History of the... Well, literally, it's called Index, comma, A History of the, colon, A Bookish Adventure from Medieval Manuscripts to the Digital Age by Dennis Duncan. It's a little, uh, you know, a little esoteric. A little esoteric. I'll go with that. Well, you know, you got to do that once in a while. Well, go ahead. Uh, we'll move on. We'll move on. Well, I'm going to be much less esoteric. Yes. And that is, uh, you showed me an article saying, guess what? Millennials are not drinking wine. Yeah, I was surprised by that. I thought everybody's drinking wine. I no, thought that no. uh, was becoming, if anything, it was... Uh, All right, so let's get this straight. Going great guns. Baby boomers drinking wine. Yeah. Okay, and the baby boomers are people born between 60, no. 46 and 64. Okay. Okay? That's us, yeah. After them come the Gen Xers. Okay. 64, born 64 to 80. Right. right, but they don't count. We don't care about them because there's not many of them. Mm-hmm. They're not a really big no uh, because the, you know right, segment because of the population. They don't. They're not throwing around enough dollars. No. so we're not talking. You have about to wait them. the baby boomers. The millennials, yeah. right? The millennials. Yeah, the kids of the kids baby, of the baby boomer. boomers. There you go. Born between eighty and ninety-five are not drinking we, wine. We know of right. They're not drinking wine. But okay? why is that? Is the question? Well, there's a there's a bunch of possible reasons. It's okay, um, and uh, one of them is yeah. competition. Yeah, there's other okay? things to drink. There are other things to drink. Right. When we were growing up, there was Schlitz, Hams, Budweiser. Well, okay. Well, look, when we were growing up, but now there's all kinds of fabulous craft beers. Uh, I understand, but there was also people weren't drinking wine either when we were growing up. But as we got a little older, people started to drink wine. Right, but we didn't get, you know, we weren't, uh, we didn't. Wine boomed with the baby boomers. Right. As they got older. Okay. Yeah, but you're right. The craft beer didn't exist then. It exists also, now. cocktails have come yeah. back into style. Yeah. Okay. And so, and also, when you think about it, uh, you know, uh, they also mentioned here that um, the millennials don't have as much money, burdened by student debt. Yeah. Well, that's a little fewer bit of middle belief. class right, job yeah, opportunities. Right. You know, cannot even assume they were ever or afford to own real estate this is this is written by a wine columnist okay <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, anyway there's hard so, no, no, this is, i think is a good point yeah. okay a really good cocktail at a restaurant yeah might cost the same as a glass of mediocre wine so that's very true if you're just going to have a is that drink true? yeah i thought cocktails were expensive kind of, well but they're so are glasses of wine. Really? Lots of places we go now, it's twelve dollars to eighteen dollars yeah, a that. glass. Yeah. And you know, they're never pouring a really nice bo- 
you know, right. bottle of wine. Right. And, uh, you know, who knows what you get when you uh, order a glass of wine. If right. you're really so you're getting, better off getting yeah. a cocktail. So, um, so it, you know, it tends to be mediocre. Um, also, here, here's, um, they say the premium wine has was far less expensive in the mid-90s, even on an adjusted basis. Why is that? I don't even know. I can't figure it well, out. Well, it's not the supply chain. At the same time, yeah. you know, this article is very confusing. Written by a wine uh, yeah. columnist. Yeah, there you go. Uh, a very good one, by the way. But um, at the same time, sales of the least expensive wines, yeah. those under $9 a bottle, yeah. have been shrinking. Really? While sales of wine priced above $15 have been rising. Sales have gone, yes. Right. So, so uh, Okay. Which is weird, but um, again, premium wines are more expensive. But you know, just because you're above fifteen dollars doesn't mean you're a premium wine. Well, okay, look, here's what wine. I'm getting from this. Okay, what? I'm getting this that the sales of wine are down. That seems to be incontrovertible, and nobody knows why. Nobody knows why. Right. Also, but, the demographics have changed, yeah. and they, they feel yeah. that perhaps the um, advertising has yeah. not been directed. I think they're, they're, there's they're a whole guessing. big thing they're at guessing. the end, they're which guessing. makes no sense yeah. about social values yeah. that people. Are not comfortable with the social values oh, of the vineyards, not, this is so that if the vineyards, you know, were right. and the companies producing the wine were more clear about those things, right. that that's people would be. Right. And um, um, so, also suggested is some kind of campaign along the lines of "Got Milk." Yeah, that's a good well, idea. Well, <laughs> except. Uh, you know, nobody's drinking milk, milk either. either. Yeah, so, so that's not working. That didn't really right. have a long uh, no, change. It's, it's, it's but I do think it's interesting. I have noticed that, um, and you, you've you noticed that uh, um, our kids don't really drink that much wine. Right. I don't drink wine. No. So I'm not, you know. Right. You don't drink wine. So I don't know where that tells us. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, I, you know. It's a surprise to me. I was floored when I saw that. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, because in some sometimes even though the kids don't drink a lot of wine, sometimes they seem to know a lot more about wine than I do. So right. oh. um, it's curious. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Uh, all right, so finally to get back to curling, it turns out, and I had no idea. I want to know if you knew this. Curling is associated with bagpipes. Did you know this? I think I knew it was associated with Scotland. Right. Well, that's but the connection, of course. Right. No, it was had anything to do with bagpipes. Yes, uh, the sport <laughs> and the instrument are bound by a shared history, one that reaches back centuries to the frozen locks of Scotland. And as a result, before curling competitions, it is not unusual to see a group of bagpipers playing. Right, okay. So here's the problem. You're having the Olympics in China, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, things being the way they are, no one's uh, flying bagpipers into the Olympics. Right. But it turns out there is a group of uh, Chinese that bag got together pipers? as bagpipers. I'm showing you a photograph now of Chinese bagpipers. Okay. Uh, and they're quite inexperienced. They, uh, they're quite well, inexperienced? Inexperienced. They played other instruments, but they were drawn to do this duty. And they're kind of learning on the job. So just before the Olympics... The officials are running around saying, "Do we find?" I don't know what the officials did. It somebody was running around. We need saying, some vaccinated guys in China who can play the bagpipes. That's exactly right. right. And uh, they say, and there they are. So they're playing before much of the competition, 
And they say so why here, is this because this is normal. This is normal. They want to make for, the curling people comfortable. Right. They want it to be as authentic <laughs> as possible. And they say that I'm reading from the article now. They say the Chinese pipers gained a worldwide audience as the Beijing Games began. And in the process received a bit of scrutiny from the Scottish news media. In one article, the Daily Record, a tabloid in Glasgow, wrote that the band had revealed they love all their traditions apart from going commando under a kilt, asserting that custom dictated that men do not wear underwear while wearing the garment. Well, everybody knows that. Yeah, okay. In the article, Zhang, who's the uh, leader, bag, leader of the bagpipers in China, replied, we try to be as close as we can to traditions, but it's cold. We have our undies for sure. So there you go, Tamsin. They're, 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 you know, traditionalists to a point, but they do draw the line in China. All right. And they're not cold. So uh, another reason to watch um, curling. All right. As if we needed another reason. Yep. And God knows we have the opportunity because every time we turn on the <laughs> Olympic Channel, it's, it's curling. curling. It's, it's unbelievable. It's curling or snowboarding. I'll they should just that. change it to the, to the curling championships. That's, that's, you know, and some other sports besides. That's, that's how I would rename it. Uh, okay. Curling and a little bit of skating on the side. Every once in a while. Uh, All right. So until uh, next week. By next week, we'll know the winner of the Super Bowl. And and we'll broadcast it here first. And And have a happy Valentine's Day. Oh, yes. Happy Valentine's Day. Stay warm with your love. It's our Super Bowl. As I say. And so until then, this is Dan (laughs) Abbyhoff. It's you. Uh, That's me and Tamsin Granger. For Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See ya.